when do you remember hearing for the first time the nativity story? When is someone in this section here, when do you remember first time hearing the nativity story? Where at? Who was it with? At home? Where? Showed it to you at home. All right, good. That's good. Thanks. Sunday school. Okay, anyone else in this section? Sunday school? All right, good. All right, great. What about this section here? When do you first remember hearing the nativity story? Colonial Christmas. <laughs> okay, yep, that's right. I'm sure it was a, a variation on a theme, right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, because it was the live nativity back then, yeah. So who else? Sunday school, probably, okay. Charlie Brown Christmas, I know. That's, I, was, I was waiting for that one. Who else? In this section, Cindy? Oh, when they were putting the nativity scene on the front lawn. Right, good, good. All right, great. In church, right? Larry, when? When you're 50. Yeah. When's a good Jewish boy going to hear about the nativity until you come to church, right? Amen for that. Praise the Lord. Amen. Actually, that's the best answer of the morning, isn't it? I mean, didn't plan for that one exactly. Yeah. What about this section over here? When's the first time? Yeah. Your grandmother told you. Exactly. Yeah. Anyone else in this section? Yes. Watching the little drummer boy on television. Great, great. I didn't, I don't remember... We probably did, but I don't remember going to church as a child. And so, really, my first recollection of hearing the Nativity story was when we did something kind of like Charlie Brown did. We, at my first grade, now believe me, this will date me all over again. In first grade, we still did the Nativity story in school every year. And I remember being in the front of the classroom as a part of the Nativity play, and it was probably a whole lot like Charlie Brown's. That, that's the first time I really remember the nativity story. I can't tell you what I did. I was probably the donkey. Who knows, you know? <clears throat> Here is a nativity story, and some of you might have already seen it, but this is just classic church nativity story material right here. Okay, go ahead and play it. Yeah, the, angel was, the angel was back there praying, dear God, what have we done? I didn't think it was going to look like this when you sent Jesus to earth. <laughs> Regardless of where you might have heard about the story first, you know, I can bet good money that the cast of characters was probably the same. And the cast of characters is probably the same for all of us, right? For instance, you, know, you have here in our picture there, and I don't have my pointer, I forgot to get it. But you have in the picture there, you have in your picture there, Mary and Joseph, and they have the halos, which is appropriate. And then Jesus came out of the womb worshiping. Ah! <laughs> right? You have the three kings, they showed up there, you know, and then you have your animals, they were there, Right? And then you have the, the shepherd people who look more like a town crier. I'm not really sure. That's kind of the cast of characters right there. The only thing that's missing in this one a little bit is that there's often the angel is like overseeing the entire thing. But that's the cast of characters. Everyone kind of has that to some degree or another in their nativity scene. Now, I know that Pastor Steve, they have the kings, but Pastor Steve won't let the family put the kings in the nativity. They have to go in the other window because they really weren't there, you know. And it's a family thing that they keep moving the kings back in the nativity. Steve moves them back, back and forth. That's kind of the cast of characters. But there's a lot of them that make sense. For instance, there's a mom and a dad, so a baby doesn't seem out of place, right? And the baby is the son of God, the savior of the world. So if there were angels in this one, like there are in so many others, angels wouldn't be out of place if God is in a manger. He was placed in a manger, which is technically a feeding trough. Even though the text never mentions animals, it doesn't seem like they would be out of place to have animals in the picture there. But probably the scenario that 
Jesus was born into is probably more like this right here. Probably more like this. Except for, I don't know how it happens, but in all these manger scenes, Jesus illuminates the entire area. Have you noticed that? There's that strange glow he had about him. He came out of the womb glowing and worshiping, right? This is probably what it was more like because you can tell that it was somewhat of a cave. You know, there's the shepherds, Mary and Joseph, without halos, although Jesus is, is glowing. And there's some animals there. Because, and even after you go to Israel, you'll see the countryside is scattered with these interesting little shallow kind of caves. And that's where they would often take their animals in there to protect them in the evening from the wet or the cool or the cold and all. That's probably more really what Jesus was born into, something of that nature right there. Later on in Matthew 2, we see that there's wise men. They come and they visit family and they're led by the star and the, the, the magi. These wise men were really astrologists. They studied the stars. They were not kings, even if we sang that. They were not kings, right? And because of the miraculous nature of the birth of the child, it didn't seem crazy that these astrologers were following the star that led them to that place. The only other characters left in the story are the shepherds. Why were they there? Why were they in the nativity scene? Why did the angels announce the birth of the Messiah to them? Why not go to the temple, to where Zacharias was? Why not go to the temple, to the priests? Why not go to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or or those people who are the religious leaders? As we know, many of the fathers of our faith were shepherds. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, all of them were shepherds. And given at that time and place in history, being a shepherd was an appropriate, perfectly fine occupation. But as history went on in its time of Christ's birth, that was not the case any longer. The occupation was one that no one would seek out to be a shepherd. They were ranked with tax collectors, which was pretty bad, and dung sweepers. They were a menial job for the lowest class people. One historian says that of the times that the shepherds, that, that they were deprived of civil rights, that they were so mistrusted you could never use them as a witness. One said to buy wool, milk, or a kid, a baby, sheep, from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. I mean, that's as bad as preachers and used car salesmen. And whenever you hear the Pharisees, when they speak about sinners, you know, thank God that I'm not a sinner like that one, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon that they might be referring to a shepherd. With this in mind, as Pastor Steve wrote in yesterday's Advent devotional, if you read yesterday's, it wasn't the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin or the high priests or the wise men or the King Herod, not even Caesar himself, but the angels came to these lowly shepherds. The angels came and announced the Savior of the world to the lowest menial labor class there was in their culture. In another one of the Advent devotionals on December 17th, Steve wrote how different, even backwards. I remember him coming to my office and he goes, okay, help me think this through. Give me some more examples. And how different, how backwards, how upside down is Christianity? Is Jesus. And so on December 17th, he wrote about that. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, the prophet wrote, for my thoughts, he's speaking, he's writing from God's, what God is saying. And so God says, from my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, that's why the announcement went to the shepherds, not to the kings and the priests. Because it wasn't God's way. That's why he was born to a young girl of no renown and to a young carpenter in a no-name place. God chooses the lowly, the insignificant, the nobodies, and the no places. And here we are. We have the glory of heaven. Jesus, who is packaged in the most vulnerable, helpless container of an infant. Entrusted to a young couple with no training on how to raise a royal, how to raise anyone of any significance. So when God chose a family, a people rather, to be his people, that he would call his own and use them to proclaim his glory to all of the world, he didn't look around the globe for the greatest empire. He didn't look around the globe for the nation or the region with the most resources. He didn't look around the world for what was most outstanding. Instead, the Lord says that in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. That's what the Lord says. This is why I chose you, because you were the most insignificant. He chooses Abraham, and he says, go. Abraham obeys, and he follows. And he tells Abraham in in Genesis 12 through 20, he says, I will make you a great nation, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. And then the next thing he does is he sends them into slavery for 400 years. Again, you just have to say, I wouldn't have done it that way. I just wouldn't have done it that way. I would have gotten them the very best leadership training possible, right? I would have gotten them all the resources possible to make them that great nation. We would have moved them out of Israel, and we would have put them someplace else that would really, really shine. So when people came, they would go, wow, this place is great. These people are great. And yet, what God has always done is he's always said, it's not the people, it's not the place, it's not the building, it's me. I, I am what's great. So he chose an insignificant group of people. Actually, he made an insignificant group of people. He chose an insignificant little sliver of land. There was nothing really beautiful about it. And he says, you're nothing special. This place is nothing special, but I am. And I'm going to use you to showcase my glory. So he chooses a young woman of no renown, another young man who's just a carpenter in a no-name city. And he says, here, I'll find something else insignificant by which to bring my son, the king of glory, into this world. When you consider all that Christ has done, even to this point, to the point of being born, when you consider just that, just that he came to earth, that's all, you've already had to consider the unthinkable. In Philippians 2, it sheds some light on it for us. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is God. 
And he says, but I'm not going to hang on to that. I'm going to set some of that aside, and I'm going to go. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Think about it like this. In every single election cycle, we see candidates serving in soup kitchens, On Martin Luther King Day, they don't take the day off. That's one of their best days because they're going to take that day and they're going to go serve for part of that day. So they'll take off their coats and ties, they'll put away their high heels, and they're going to show up at a soup kitchen. Here in the city, they're going to show up at a vacant lot. Who knows where they're going to show up? But for a few hours, they're going to be just like me and you. And at the end of that day, they'll go back to their coat and tie and all the other things that their place and privilege gives them. But in the meantime, you know, in those, those moments when they're just like us, they'll visit a garage or they'll visit a diner and, and they'll eat or they'll go to a barber shop and they'll hang out. All these places where real people live and work. They want the voting people to think that they have something in common with them. So they'll hang up their coat and tie and they just show up where they are. But then they leave and go back to where they are, a place where most of us are not. You see, even though that's a very crude image, even though it doesn't really do full justice, it's the best way I can say that's what Jesus did when he left heaven to come and be with us. He took off part of what it meant to him to be fully God. He emptied himself. Who even knows what that means? I know there's some theologians who made a lot of money on books that tell us what it means, but I don't think that my mind or any other human mind can fully grasp what it means for God to empty himself. And then he didn't show up for Martin Luther King Day or for, you know, King Herod Day or whatever the case may be. He didn't show up for a day to say, look, I'm just like you. He didn't do that. Instead, he showed up as an infant born of a woman to a man, born in a lowly manger in a very humble kind of setting. And he lived a very normal life. And he suffered colds and cuts and bruises. He suffered being hungry. He suffered sorrow. He suffered in all the ways that we do, he says. And then he suffered even to the point of dying a death that he didn't have to. He wasn't here for the votes. He was here for me and you. He came to live like we do and to live among us. But to even kind of get a better sense of, of what he gave up. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians 1. It's a long passage, so I want, to, I want us to read it together. Colossians 1, 15 through 22. Here is the preeminent glory of Christ summed by Paul in Colossians 1, 15 through 22. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And by him all things were created both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. Now then, if you're a marker in your Bible kind of person, you need to pull out your marker and mark how many times in this passage alone it says all things. Because what it's trying to tell you is that Jesus is above all things. It's trying to tell you that there is nothing that rises above him, that everything is under his control, that everything is under his whim, everything lies underneath his sovereignty. And so here he says, He is the image of the firstborn of the invisible of God. Verse 16, he says, for by him, what? All things were created. And later on that verse, it says, 
All things have been created by him and for him. And then in 17, it says, and he is before, what? All things. And in him, what? All things hold together. He keeps it all together. He was before there was anything. And then, he, and then when he arrived, he held it. And when everything he was made, he held it all together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of, to dwell in him and through him to be reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross through him. I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, and yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Can we just say it together? All things. All things. And then he took that, and somehow or another, I don't understand it, but by faith I believe it, but somehow or another, he, the creator of the universe, the one that holds it all together, he emptied himself to come and be with us like us. All of that, quite honestly, is really just so many words to me. Because I don't know how to understand it. I don't know how to grasp that the Savior of the universe, the creator of the universe, emptied himself to come and live among man and to even die a death he didn't deserve. I don't know how that works. Doesn't it make sense, though? Wouldn't it have been what the world expected to have the Messiah presented, the world expected to have the Messiah presented to the most important of the world. But because he was so humble, he has announced to these the most humble, even the most humiliated of the culture at that time. And what did the angels include in their announcement? They said, don't be afraid. You can look at the passage there. It says, don't be afraid. He says, I've got good news for you. It will bring you great joy. We have good news for all people, even shepherds. For today in Bethlehem, the Savior was born. He is the Messiah. And you'll find him. And this is what you'll look for when you go look for him. He'll be wrapped and lying in a manger. A Savior. The Messiah. For all the world. Even shepherds. Even me and you. The angels have a worship time there in the sky as I make this announcement, and then our shepherds go into town to find the baby. And when they arrive, they find everything just as the angel said. This passage says that they told Mary and Joseph what the angels had said to them. And then in verse 20, it says, And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as been told to them. You know, the angel said, we bring good news to you. What do you do with good news? What do you do with good news? It's kind of like, well, you know, hey, Macy's is having a half-price sale. You go and tell someone about it. Hey, nachos are two for one at Applebee's. You go and tell someone about it. But here, it's not that. It's the promised Messiah. The one that we've been told about for hundreds of years. That one has arrived, and he's in a manger in a town named Bethlehem. 
they went back, and if you've been to Israel, you'll know what I'm talking about. You know, they stone people there because stones are everywhere. I mean, it's the most common thing you'll find lying around. Rocks are everywhere. They went back to those hilly pastures on that cold night, and they began to tell the other shepherds. That right there is a great illustration of equip, send, serve, where they went and just told the others that they were in relationship with. But what had changed? What had changed for these guys? They went back to the same degree of stigma. They went back to the same dirty sheep, the same dangerous job fighting off animals, the same degree of poverty and injustice and stigma. All that was still there when they returned from seeing this child. None of that had changed. Nothing on the outside had changed. But everything on the inside had been rearranged, had been changed, had been transformed. From the very beginning, from the cradle, Jesus was about transforming people's lives. Here we have this this infant child and his announcement and his arrival, just that. He doesn't do anything but lie there and, and cry. And just that, he's already begun to change the lives of men, women, and children. What the shepherds needed was not respect from their community. They didn't need to, be, to raise up, to, to become up higher in the ranks of their social order. There was nothing about their outward lives that they really needed to be changed. What they really needed was, and because that's exactly what mankind focuses on all the time. But what Jesus was after was a change from the inside. In Matthew 23, 25, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. You blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which, from which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, indeed, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are full of dead man's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. Even you are outwardly appear righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. You go back to the story of David, choosing David in 1 Samuel. Here we are. God says, go to the house, find this one that I've anointed as king, and, and, the, and they bring out all the tall, handsome, likely candidates. And he goes, no, none of these. And he said, well, we have one more. He's out tending the sheep. Bring him. And God says to him, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance, on the height and the stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. The Lord looks, not, looks on the outward appearance. The man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. People focus on the outward looks, on their appearances, on managing what other people think of them, because they really cannot change what's on the inside, because we need a Savior to do that. And a child was born in a manger over 2,000 years ago to do that in the hearts of mankind. Whether you're a king or a shepherd, whether you are in the right crowd or the out crowd or the bad crowd, Jesus was born to die for our sins and to make us a part of his family and of his kingdom. And no matter who you are or what you've done or how you got here today or how you got to where you are in life, A Savior was born on that day for you. A Savior was born on that day for you. Jesus came 
not for the powerful and the rich. And yet, as mankind, we keep trying to make him about that. So we, we build our churches as big and as beautiful as we can. I've been in churches in Texas that you'd think you were in a shopping mall. And not Knoxville not Valley either. More like King of Prussia. We have a hard time being humble like our Lord was humble. And yet he came to accept you for exactly who you are, for exactly how you are, without any question. He came to the most humble, and he accepted them just just the way they were. And he accepts you today just the way you are. There are people in this room right now who have known the Lord for a long time, and yet you are still afraid of what others would think about you and how they respond to you and what they would do if they really knew the real you. If they really knew all the darkness of your heart, if they really knew the things you did in the darkness of your own life, and yet he came for you and accepts you at that exact place where you are and loves you for being who you are and wants to walk with you through that. And help you and and really overcome that for you. There are people in this room who perhaps have been considering the claims of Christ for a while, but they're not sure that they really, really think they can do it because they think that they have to clean themselves up first. And so it's like people, I said this recently, it's like people who clean up their house before the maid comes to clean the house. People feel like they have to clean up their life before they can ask Jesus into their life, before they can confess their sins. I, don't, I have too long a list to take to him. He already knows that list. Already. You can't clean up your life. And there are other people in this room who feel like that there's no way that Jesus would ever want them in his family at all. And that's not true either. For he died for those very people. He died for people just like you, if that's what you're thinking. And then there are people in the room who have been gone a long time. One of my biggest problems with my own sin is that I feel like, how can I come back to you again and again and again and again with the same sin that I came and talked to you about last time? And so some of us, myself included, have taken little walkabouts and said, I can't go back to him again and do that. And so we walk away. And he says, I'll take you right where you are. Let's just start over today. I am so, so grateful in my life that he did that for me. And I know he's done it for others of us in this room. Step back in. Re-engage today. He's waiting on you. Maybe not in a manger in Bethlehem, but right in your heart, he's waiting on you. Just say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And just start over. Let's, Let's pray. Father, today, we are grateful that in your great wisdom, in your great sovereignty, you chose to engage the most humble, for we really are among that lot. Thank you, Father, for loving us who, where we are, for who we are, and just like we are, no matter what we've ever done. That you came and you saved all of us. That good news applies to all of us. 
We are so grateful. Give us the courage to continue to walk with you honestly and openly. And and give us the courage to walk that way with our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Today, we thank you for the Christ child. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.